0: Alex, beautiful segue this morning. That was wonderful noise going into wonderful noise. What was the opening music today?
1: Oh, it was crass as usual. I wasn't feeling too creative.
0: Hey, you sound like you're wearing a mask. Yeah, I'm wearing a mask. Why are you wearing a mask?
1: I'm wearing three masks now. <laughs> no, uh, we, got a, we got another person in the studio.
0: Tell us who's in the studio with
1: us. It's the uh, artist Egon Scheel. You might have known from the Wikipedia page for the artist Egon Shield. <laughs> you want him to say hi? Sure. We got a mask on too. Hold on a second. Let me give him the one pair of headphones we have.
0: Hello, Egon. How are you?
1: Oh, I'm Dandy. How you doing, Chuck?
0: Good. I just have one question for you. What was it like dying from the 1918 pandemic?
1: Oh, it was as uh, marvelous as you might
0: expect. <laughs> Sweet. So we, we have that to look forward to. Oh, we all do. We all do. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Live from the nightmare of want, this Is hell if our response to the pandemic in its earliest days here in the States Is any measure of how we will be responding to crises in the future Then we are woefully unprepared and seemingly without a plan or even a clue of what to do when we face a pending disaster You may remember a little over a year ago shoppers filling aisles fighting over toilet paper while the media was insisting we were all in this together It seems in reality, before we're all in this together, we're actually all at each other's throats. But we all do not have the resources necessary to plan for a disaster. Not all of us can afford an off-the-grid, self-sustainable retreat complete with hydroponics for year-round farming. And when disaster hits, it's the already most vulnerable, the hardest. But who can think of those already marginalized when you're scrambling for your own life as a hurricane is about to make landfall Or an environmental disaster is about to threaten your home, and your family, and your lives. For the already vulnerable, there is no retreat from disaster, whether it's climate change or the pandemic. And for those stuck in the county's jails and other prisons, there is no escape from disaster, as many are left trapped inside prison walls and the bars of their cells as disasters hit, left with little to no protection from the elements. We'll be discussing the intersection between mass incarceration and disasters like climate change and the pandemic in a few minutes When we speak with Daniela Ochoa Bravo, who wrote the In These Times article When Climate Disaster and Mass Incarceration Collide, Failed Responses to Environmental Disasters and Jails are Gambling with Detainees' Lives Daniela is a mixed media artist and writer based in Brooklyn who graduated from the New School with a major in Global Studies and a minor in Ethnicity and Race Daniela is currently an editorial in- intern within these times Follow Daniela on Twitter at B R. Find out more about Daniela at our website DanielaOchoaBR.com Also on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers To this week's question from hell We'll share with you what's happening on our Patreon podcast Tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time At patreon.com slash hell. And we'll tell you what's happening on This Is Hell next week And of course, there will be a moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin producing is Alex Jury, as well as Egon Scheel. Alex, how has your week gone so far from behind that mask?
1: Hey, uh, you say bona fides or bona fides when you say it out loud.
0: Hmm. I think either one. It's like Caribbean and Caribbean, data and data, right? I think the either one... Bona fides sounds a little bit more pretentious. Yeah, I know. I bona fide I, sounds I, like you're talking from the 1930s, though.
1: I'll take 1930s over pretentious. i got to make the switch. I realize I say bona fides. I don't know where I got that from.
0: I think that's more like contemporary now. I think that's what you're supposed to be saying.
1: Bona fides? Mm. I'm, I'm making the switch to bona fide. I don't, <laughs> I don't know why I bring this up in conversation in the first place.
0: Uh, Probably because uh, you're really concerned about Latin. I don't know anyone who has bona fides anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I definitely have bona fides, though. I have them in a box underneath my bed. My week has been like most weeks during the pandemic. Too much drinking, too much staring at a screen, probably too much smoking. But who can tell when... You're drinking as much as you are Every evening coming over here And uh, spending some quality time with Mel The kind of feral cat Who lives outside our back door here at the studio Which I was just doing Then promising myself I'm going to go home And go to bed at a reasonable hour And instead staying up too late Promising myself instead just one more beer Then waking up long before my alarm Dragging myself out of bed And unable to go back to sleep And generally being physically and emotionally exhausted By the ongoing outbreaks of new variants of the virus So yeah, for me, just another typical week during a global pandemic that has killed millions. Oh, and I uh, rediscovered the glory that is unpasteurized orange juice, which I did not know was so readily available here in Chicago, so I got that going for me. God, I love unpasteurized orange juice. Oh my God, it's so good. But more important than any of that, Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's
1: question from hell is, what got you kicked out of the commune? What got you... Kicked out of the commune It's so
0: wearing that goddamn mask That's what it got kicked you out of the <laughs> you kicked out of the commune, Alex The person with our favorite answer to this week's question They need to put a mask inside the vaccine <laughs> little, Just little masks inside oh the vaccine Oh my god Why are you not a scientist or a virologist? <laughs> I have not figured this out yet The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment... Well, it's Jeff and the Jews again It's not my fault Alex will have more of your answers To this week's question Following our guest again This week's question is What got you kicked out of the commune? As we told you on yesterday's show We are working very hard At getting a guest on the show To talk about what is happening In Israel and Palestine Sure, we... Could have booked someone from here in the States To give their opinion from afar But we would much rather speak to someone actually in Gaza Or the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in Jerusalem Where street fighting has been taking place Between Arab and Jewish Israelis Alex and I found over a a dozen potential guests Alex has sent out lots of requests Including to Mariam Barghouti Who I believe is the sister of a few brothers we've had on the show Marwan Mustafa and Omar Barghouti All have been on the show in the past More on that later And while Miriam could not do it She sent us additional suggestions for possible guests And we may have confirmed one Who knows, maybe by the end of today's show We'll actually know who will be on to talk about What's taking place in Israeli-Palestinian violence So stay tuned in for that As I believe Alex may actually be able to confirm a guest By the time our show is over And on last week's Patreon podcast At patreon.com slash how We did play our 2002 interview with Ghassan Andoni, director of the Palestinian Center for rapprochement between people, which took place during uh, that uh, interview, took place during the Israeli security forces siege of the Church of the Nativity, the place believed to be the birthplace of Jesus Christ, which was being occupied by protesters who were supporting the Palestinian cause and had fled into the church for sanctuary, which they were given by Franciscan monks. So we asked you all yesterday if you had suggestions for guests within Gaza or Jerusalem. Adam B. sent an email early this morning saying, dear This Is Hell and This Is Hell listeners, Well, I don't have a particular suggestion for a Palestinian guest that's been in Gaza the last few weeks, I do have a documentary I strongly recommend to fellow listeners called Killing Gaza. It came out a few years ago, but in the last couple of days, it's been put up for free on YouTube. I'm aware there's a decent segment of the left, including at least a few guests that have ideological issues with the filmmakers, Max Blumenthal and Dan Cohen, and with their outlet, The Gray Zone. But I nevertheless encourage everyone to check this movie out from start to finish. They filmed this in the aftermath of the last major Israeli offensive, and it consists primarily of interviews with a broad swath of Gazans, old and young, men and women, middle class and dirt poor, as they contend with life and death under violent occupation. It's one of the most harrowing, hellish things I've ever seen. Thanks for the tip, Adam. And I have heard a lot of good things about killing Gaza. That is, a lot of good things about how well it documents the horrors of life in gaza so if anybody's interested in knowing and wanting to have that kind of eyewitness recollection of what is actually happening in gaza go check out killing gaza which you can see right now by going to the website killinggaza.com. real quick this is hell is in the news yep we made it into the prestigious media outlet that is the Swarthmore Phoenix The student newspaper of Pennsylvania Swarthmore College A student by the name of Christopher Folk Wrote an opinion column with the headline On Denialism Which discusses what he sees as his own complicity In the greatest dangers humanity faces today And his refusal to live in the denialism Of that complicity any longer It's actually a pretty good column But at the end of the column And in italics So it must be important Because if it's in italics It's important. Christopher writes, I would like to thank Chuck Mertz and This Is Hell for unveiling the different ways denialism affects me in my life. Christopher, you are welcome, and thank you for the very kind words, and thanks for listening. Coming up, what happens when the disastrous effects of climate change or an environmental catastrophe comes bearing down on people stuck in prison and unable to escape? We'll also tell you what's happening on Patreon during our Friday Patreon podcast this week. And we will have Jeff Dorton in the Moment of Truth during this week's moment. It's Jeff and the Jews again. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what got you kicked out of the commune? What got you kicked out of the commune? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can see all the merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Mel again at our Facebook page. Message, yeah, direct message it to us via Twitter or email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show. Your eyewitness to grief. This is... Hell, we rarely, if ever, consider what we ourselves would do when and if a crisis is suddenly upon us. The pandemic revealed how unprepared we truly are when it comes to a crisis, whether it's the global spread of a deadly virus or the mounting effects of climate change. And if we are not even thinking about how we should or could respond to disaster, we're likely not thinking about how such crises could affect those who are Already marginalized and vulnerable The poor, the homeless, women and children Are the ones who will suffer most As they always do Whether it's global warming or global warfare Rarely do we consider the impact On the most vulnerable And of the vulnerable The least likely to be considered Are the incarcerated Who during times of disaster Have Nowhere to flee as they cannot escape their detention. Here to help us understand the link between climate change and mass incarceration, Danielle Ochoa Bravo wrote the In These Times article, When Climate Disaster and Mass Incarceration Collide, Failed Responses to Environmental Disasters in Jails are Gambling with Detainees' Lives. Welcome to This is Hell, Daniela. Thank you so much. It's great to have you on the show Daniela is a mixed media artist and writer based in Brooklyn She is currently an editorial intern within these times And you can follow Daniela on Twitter At Daniela Ochoa BR And find out more about Daniela at her website Daniela Ochoa BR My first question for you Because I want to make sure that everybody understands This is a story not just about the incarcerated But everybody who are made vulnerable by crisis For those who may not have this concern For people who are incarcerated Incarcerate, incarcerated. Why should those who are not incarcerated be concerned about the safety of prisoners or jail inmates?
2: Mm, thank you for that question. And I feel like that's kind of um, the main thing that comes up in any responses that I get when I talk about why prisoner rights um, affect everybody's rights. Um, we're going to start just with the fact that it's usually marginalized people who make up the largest demographic of being incarcerated um it's a direct result from failed state responses it's also you know as we know the police system is super discriminatory um in terms of why it affects everybody you know it's just it's people who have been and suffering the consequences of poor systems. And that's kind of on everybody. And we have about 1.8 million people in jails right now, more than any other country, and 2.1 million in 2019. Um, And about 275,000 deaths a year. So clearly, something there is abusive, and it's not actually rehabilitatory in any sense.
0: So to what extent are prisons and jails Unprepared for crisis because nobody's prepared for crisis with neoliberalism Or are jails even less prepared than the rest of us are Because you know our lives are so precarious right now you know You can't sit down and think about a way in which you're going to protect yourself from climate change So is that just indicative of our society in general or is it even worse in jails and prisons?
2: you know i'm willing to bet it's a thousand times worse in jails and prisons because you already have these really poor hygienic conditions and people suffering from you know chronic illnesses if they're near um super sites so you take that and then you add a climate disaster and for example in my in my article i quoted fdoc um fdoc slave who really kindly spoke with me and talked about hurricane protection, which is an environmental disaster. And you get really horrible hurricanes down in the South and they'll just put plywood. So at least, you know, typically for the average citizen, it's you You have the right to kind of either be in your home. Maybe you can flee, maybe a group of you and your family can find a way to leave the town or there's resources. Um, but these people cannot move. And so you have a horrible catastrophe and they put in plywood and it's not enough. So I, I would be willing to bet that it's, it's a lot different. It's, you know, you have people that are just in a room, unable to leave, catastrophes coming at them, roads are closed and, you know, everybody's pointing the finger at the other person and nobody wants to take the charge or the blame for that.
0: You just mentioned talking to FDOC Slave, which was a pseudonym used by a prisoner, Florida Department of Corrections Slave, a pseudonym used by a prisoner who was speaking with you. He was very concerned about his safety or any retaliation he might have for talking to you. Was it legal for him to talk to you? Because I don't understand if it's legal for him to talk to you, then why would he be concerned about retaliation or his safety?
2: Um, I mean... Listen, the the biggest, you know, talking point that we had when we were communicating is the fact that even though they in jails and prisons have kind of these response boxes where inmates are able to actually write any concerns that they have, these are actually used to retaliate against prisoners. So FDOC slave was telling me that he's filed upwards of 5,000 Um, complaints, and he just no longer does at this point in terms of some things are just not even worth bringing up because of retaliation. So you get that. Not only is it for his safety coming in and out of, you know, wherever he is right now, but he's talking about something and his name is FDOC slave. You know, that obviously implies like horrible amounts of abuse that he's faced while in Florida's incarceration system. So I would not be shocked if further retaliation kind of came out of him speaking with me or speaking with the Florida Prisoner Solidarity Group, who, you know, it's their active you know abolitionists. So the DOC is not going to be happy about any of that.
0: And for those who do not know somebody who is incarcerated or have never been incarcerated themselves... I think this is a really important point to stress. How often are the rights that prisoners have just completely dismissed, ignored, and never held accountable for that dismissal or ignoring their rights?
2: Right. Well, I would argue that very frequently. And even you have, I mean, for the Piney Point case that I bring in my article, the ACLU of Florida had to get involved and sued the state of Florida and the sheriff of this county, um, Rick Wells, for human rights right violation. Um, I think since 1980 to 2016, I believe, um, over 1,200 8th Amendment violations have been filed. And you can imagine that it's gonna be more than that because this is things that make it out to the media, people who it's reported cases.
0: You point out, let's get to that case in Florida You write that more than 1,200 detainees at Manatee County Jail Waited to hear if they would be evacuated from the danger zone On April 4th of this year as a breach in a nearby wastewater reservoir Threatened to plunge the area under a 20-foot wall of contaminated water What followed were 72 hours of uncertainty And yet another failed response to an environmental disaster That gambled with the lives and well-being of incarcerated people When it comes to climate disasters How prioritized are those who are incarcerated or detained? Because my guess is there are many who would not care if they got any help whatsoever. So does stigma against prisoners lead to them not being a priority during a climate crisis? Does a kind of shared societal sense of vengeance play a role?
2: Um, I absolutely believe so. I mean, you have here in this Manatee County case, um, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, evacuated three, the 300 household that lived in the area and also helped pay for their meals and hotels. Meanwhile, you have a, like an absurd amount of 1,200 people in this jail, which is going to be about the same as the people in these households and he refused to do anything about it and would not acknowledge them. Why? It's because people believe that incarcerated persons deserve this kind of constant punishment, but you know, it's like, what more do you want than these people literally relinquishing their rights? They don't have clean drinking water. They get abused, they get tortured with their fans. So you're already putting these people who most people don't even know about the injustices that happen within these prisons, unless you have contact with an inmate or a detainee you're not going to be knowing about this, so of course that you know this is all like prejudice reactions to incarcerated persons, and it does feel to me this way of further punishment and just absolute negligence and ignorance from the state's behalf.
0: Well, part of it is that we, like you, we both, both both of us are just saying it, we we don't know. What explains to you? Why do you think it is? that the mainstream corporate establishment media why do you think they do not report on jail and prison conditions
2: you know it could be from losing support of the big corps that kind of do benefit from incarcerating people it could be you know privatized prisons you make money off of essentially stripping people of rights and locking them in a small cell Um, And I think that there's a lot of bias in this country about wrong or right or morality in a way that really clouds people's way of feeling empathy or, or understanding that, like, what came before this person was arrested and what factors, you know, came into play when this person was arrested or sentenced or how bonds look like for different people of different races. That's a really kind of crucial point.
0: You mentioned the proximity of not only this one particular case of the uh, potential environmental disaster, uh, the contamination wall that might have been uh, blown out and then uh, infected and contaminated the prison. Um, And so you mentioned how these facilities are often close to prisons. How often are sites that have potential environmental risks located near incarceration facilities. Does the same low property prices that attract prisons attract these kind of environmental dumps? Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, one third of jails and prisons in the U.S. are less than three miles away from a Superfund cleanup site. So those are sites that are highly contaminated, that the EPA says nobody should be living here. Um, And it's definitely not coincidental. That's just such a mass number. Um, and you have people reporting from many different jails and you have people from, you know, Fayette and Pennsylvania reporting that they have horrible medical problems and the consequences of building prisons in these super cheap, like undesirable sites. I'm not sure if it's further punishment or it's like people really do not care that are building these things or they just don't take these things or they do take them into consideration and it's yet another way of you know punishing and kind of being like oh well you shouldn't have committed that crime which is the top response that i get in any sort of like abolition work that i do it's like why be empathetic when they did this or they did that and it's just horrible
0: i'm trying to figure out the excuses that the prisons might use for not moving the prisoners in the situation within Florida. So how difficult is it to move prisoners and where could they have been moved to in the first place? Were they slow to move prisoners because it takes time and it's hard to find another facility that wouldn't be overcrowded with those prisoners? Is it just a, a logistics issue?
2: You know, I don't really buy any sort of overcrowding complaints because, on Manatee County site's website, their limit, their capacity is at 900. And right now they have 1,200 inmates and they were also crowding people in cells. So the prisoners in the Manatee County case that were evacuated, it was 267 prisoners were, I mean, sorry, detainees, um, this is a jail, were moved to Polk County Jail in Florida. And there's a lot of nearby jails. And I mean, you even have Jacksonville you have Orlando you can move you can distribute people in a case of emergency what's going to be much worse is had that county flooded with the 20-foot you know radioactive water flood you would have had a thousand dead bodies on your hand or a thousand people who would have had health conditions for the rest of their lives
0: By early morning of April 4th The sheriff had crammed as many inmates as possible Into the second floor's cells They evacuate everybody from the first floor They cram everybody upstairs They've already boarded up this facility So there's very little ventilation You can't see outside People are in this big boarded up box You write that only 267 of the 1,200 inmates Were evacuated during the crisis And they were sent to the nearby Polk County Jail How much more safe were they at Polk And how overcrowded did Polk become?
2: You know, I'm actually not sure about the Polk County jail numbers, but I think it's safe to say that Florida has one of the worst uh, person in jail systems in the country, and they're known for overcrowding. And especially during COVID, you have an excessive amount of people in these six-by-eight-foot cells. So whereas typically it should be two, I was hearing from a DOC slave that you had just, like, sardine packed, Cells during COVID. So I can imagine that it was a similar situation at Polk County Jail, but that was already what was happening at Manatee County Jail and in other Florida detention centers.
0: So here's another excuse I came up with. You ready for this one? So (laughs) to what extent is the problem simply that prisons and jails are under-resourced, that they do not have the employees or equipment to better address evacuation during times of potential disaster? Is it just impossible because they're underfunded?
2: I mean, I just have a very hard time advocating for the funding of prisons and jails when I just don't think that they should exist. Um, So yes, they are underfunded, but at the same time, you know, it's like such few people are advocating for the rights of prisoners, just on some sort of like ego morality high that you know some get. But
0: so you also mentioned that uh, lawsuit against the sheriff of uh, Manatee County, Rick Wells. To what extent are prisons, our jails, and the sheriff, how much are they held accountable for their treatment of detainees in the face of climate disaster? Can they be held criminally responsible or are they only susceptible to civil suits? Because I'm wondering how much they acted irresponsibly because they're not held responsible or accountable for actions that can lead to the deaths of prisoners or inmates in custody, that they know that they have impunity. So to what extent can prisons and sheriffs, jails, Be held accountable for the treatment of prisoners.
2: I think legally, quote unquote, if we're talking about legal state-wise punishment, it's really rare that you'll see any. Um, Unfortunately, I, you know, I did a lot of research for this article, um, just about past reactions, past punishment, like how you know, you 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 hear things and you read things and you see things and you're like, how is somebody not getting Blamed for this. Why are these stories just reported and dropped? And it's because again, these people just kind of essentially believe the same things and they all kind of help each other cover their own tracks. And no names of Department of Corrections officers are leaked when you hear about somebody who died um, from you know temperature-related conditions or from disease. It's always, you know, prisoner name, but it's never who was there who is kind of at fault for this
0: how opaque is that how transparent is it how because you know we're finally finding out about people who are dying while in police custody people who are killed by police we're finally knowing their names and saying their names to what extent do we know the names of the people who are dying from prison conditions because if we just don't know who they are if they're not being reported how can this story get out to the public?
2: Well, that is exactly our issue. So in terms of how the story can get out to the public, it's when you do have access to, um, you know, incarcerated people. So, but that, you know, take into account that takes money. A phone call to jail is about $9 an hour. That's a lot of money to pay. And mind you, it's like very mediocre quality of sound. And if it's on a jail or you know, prison phone, the amount of things that they can say, I'm sure very different. So um, on behalf of, you know, finding out what's actually happening or finding out the names of these people, if you don't have contact to, you know, somebody with a contraband phone within a prison or a jail, it is very hard because nobody, you know, it's like what happens in jails is really not visible. It's not transparent there's no way for somebody to to know what's happening because the you know the, the department of corrections isn't going to come out and be like oh yeah i just spent my whole morning torturing inmates you know and there is no kind of tattle-telling you know prisoner officers unfortunately and- so i think it's also oh, sorry but just one quick thing i think it's a lot easier to have names out either if you know it's Before. So during the arrest, it's easier to have a name because of body cams inside of prisons. It's a lot more difficult.
0: So we've had discussions on uprisings in prisons across the United States during the pandemic, uprisings often caused by treatment prisoners are experiencing during the pandemic. And a few weeks ago, we spoke with St. Louis City Assistant Public Defender Adolfo Minka about the uprisings there against abuse during the pandemic was was the poor response to evacuating prisoners who were facing environmental disaster in Florida while the pandemic was spreading. Any different from poor treatment they would have experienced prior to the pandemic? Because I'm wondering if the pandemic was a cover for the consistent poor treatment that predates the pandemic, or if the pandemic is actually allowing the Sheriff's Department to rationalize even worse treatment of prisoners.
2: Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, COVID-19 has been weaponized horribly by the DOC. Um, cause now again, for instance, oh, they weren't moved because COVID risk, but, you know, Jordan Masarek, who I spoke with, they were very clear about kind of reacting about no, you know, a COVID risk is packing these cells already. So it's like y- you have a COVID risk and now a lethal risk, but again, it's just being weaponized to kind of, yeah, I guess, give an excuse to things that they were already doing. So I would definitely agree with you there.
0: You just mentioned Jason Mazurik, he or Jordan Mazurik. He's with the Florida Prison Prisoner Solidarity Network. Uh, You write the detainees waited nervously to see if the breach of the of the wall would mean that a toxic flood would cut off all access to the critical infrastructure on the first floor their water supply or worse had the jail flooded emergency access to the facility would have been possible since the florida highway uh, would have been possible since the florida highway patrol had already closed US route 41 the only road to the jail so They were abandoned. In August 2005, when Katrina made landfall in Louisiana, the staff of Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office abandoned the jail, leaving roughly 650 prisoners in their cells, no access to food, water, or ventilation for several days. Clearly, that horrible event did not lead to reform or even calls for reform. Is there any sign that the events in April in Florida will lead to better preparedness when it comes to addressing inmate safety during times of disaster or 16 years from now are we going to be right back here reporting on yet another event where prisoners were locked up and abandoned during a climate or environmental crisis
2: you know i'm i want to be hopeful really badly when it comes to this because it's something that I, i'm really you know passionate about but i do not think that the April event in Florida, you know, it, it's those things that they're in the news, they're in local news. So, not much, you know, national coverage on it. So, I'm very glad that, you know, and this time picked up the story, but it gets coverage for about a week. And then the lawsuit is dropped, and, you know, people return to their lives. And, you know, radioactive water was pumped into Tampa Bay. So, now the story moves to just environmental disasters. So, I think people have a very hard time if you're not, you know, involved in organizing or activism to push for these stories to really be broadcast. And if you're just seeing like a little headline on a smaller journal once, you know, every couple of months, you might think that it's not that severe, but it's like, these people are still there. And this could have been like 1,200, you know, essentially dead bodies and, it's not about whether or not it happened it's like just the fact that they took that gamble is just to me it's like unforgivable and i don't know how rick wells is still the sheriff i don't know why ron desantis is still you know, whatever but <laughs> i so- i know i'm not <laughs> i'm realizing this is live radio and i cannot really share exactly my feelings but they're not good feelings towards
0: <laughs> yeah i i think i can Hear those feelings already You uh, cite uh, prison legal news uh, Reporting that 79 inmates And prison staff suffered from Heat related illnesses in the first 10 months Of 2018 and Obviously, due to climate change, it keeps getting hotter, so things are going to continue to get worse. We've been talking about the difficulty with uh, knowing exactly what's happening within jails and within prisons and how that lack of transparency may lead us to be uninformed, and therefore we don't know exactly how to or when to react and how to you know, uh, activate against this kind of abuse. But to what extent, Daniela, do you think just being more informed, the American public would actually change their mind on prison conditions? Or do you think that it's not just about information, it's about something more than just being informed?
2: You know, I definitely think that it, it does take more than just being informed. I think it's kind of like a social responsibility and as, you know, just as human beings, we kind of owe it to each other to contextualize a little bit. Um, especially if you know you come from a position of privilege I think that that should kind of just go without say but I do think that there's value to be had in the fact that people might actually be more intrigued to just learn and get informed before they actually figure out how they want to take action because I feel like with you know personal solidarity there's many different ways to take action so from donating to for instance Florida solidarity group, um, who they, they spend all of their kind of donation monies on things that actually better the day-to-day lives of these prisoners and help get stories out, um, in this way that it's just like very essential. Otherwise, you know, we wouldn't know what's happening. So you can do donations, you can do just kind of informing the people around you when they make these snarky comments of, you know, I, I <laughs> my, my first comment to, um, to the article I published. And I was very excited to see what people would say was killing them slowly. I'm like, who, you know, it's just, I think, just informing the people around you and starting there, it's really necessary. And not everybody's gonna agree and be on the same page. And I know a lot of people don't really believe in full abolition, but I think yeah just just inform the people around you inform yourself and I don't see how you can really, really inform yourself and not want to do more, so I think that kind of comes with the process.
0: You quote Deidre McDonald writing in a first-person account for the Marshall Project about being incarcerated in Texas prison during Hurricane Harvey in 2017. McDonald describes how to get to the main building, I must wade into it knee-deep. That's when I notice the ladies with wheelchairs, walkers, and crutches are struggling. One woman is crying hysterically because she is... Afraid of water And the dorm boss Can't get her To take one step forward You add that Her account calls Attention to how Lack of planning And infrastructure Poses additional risks For prisoners With disabilities Or phobias Lack of planning And infrastructure The Biden administration Is negotiating A major infrastructure plan Is there any suggestion Anywhere in that plan Or anywhere Of improving the infrastructure Of prisons in the U.S. So we don't have inmates In wheelchairs Trying to make it through flooded hallways. I know that you do not support the funding of prisons, but I'm just curious, do you know if in that infrastructure plan, I mean, he's talking about everything from medical, from healthcare to whatever else he wants to put in the plan. So is he talking about potentially improvement of prisons?
2: Um, just quick clarification. It's not that I don't support. I would like any conditions that make their lives better. I just wish that we were kind of funding The process of undoing jails rather than you know facilitating um detention but i'm actually not sure on biden's infrastructure bill if it would create some tangible changes to these centers so that's definitely something very interesting to to look up after the show
0: in this era of the twin crises of climate change and the pandemic and placing them upon a system, an incarceration system that is already overcrowded, under-resourced, and unprepared. Is incarceration increasingly becoming a death sentence?
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's always been a death sentence because, I mean, yeah, you look at the leading cause of death in prisons; it's always... um, terminal or chronic illness, the top four are cancer, heart disease, liver disease, and respiratory disease. All of those are also symptoms from, again, being placed near the Superfund, poor condition, poor hygiene sites, to that, you know, you get COVID, and you add that, and it's one in five prisoners has had COVID, and that's just the reported cases, you know what I mean? It's it's probably higher, but we'll never know. That's just reported numbers, so it is definitely a sentence covid has only highlighted that but we can't forget that you know it, it has always been this way and this is just like yet another like horrible f- fate moment for you know incarcerated people
0: and you write again about jordan mazurek from florida prison solidarity mazurek you quote him saying Incarcerated persons lack of mobility Makes it so they cannot move out of the path Of a hurricane on their own free will Or move out of the path Of what would have been a 20 foot High wall of toxic water Coming at their jail Prisons are just an ongoing disaster And that's how it's going to be Until we close them all Why do abolitionists like Mazurek Believe we simply cannot Make sites of incarceration That are not cruel and inhumane that do not make these those detained vulnerable to disaster that are not on toxic sites. Why are why are nice jails and prisons impossible if we already have these low security prisons for wealthy white collar criminals? Right.
2: Um, Those literal daycare centers. Um, I, you know, one, I think you cannot kind of strip somebody of their rights and have that be ethical. I'm also just conflicted on how, you know, you force somebody to grow up under certain conditions their entire lives and, you know, the system is racist, it's ableist, it's classist. And then on top of that, you you take the people who's had it the hardest and you kind of make it so that there's a direct pipeline for them to be imprisoned. So I, I, I don't think that there's like any sort of ethical like withholding of people. And, you know, a, a lot of people also do lose their lives um, to incarceration. So I think it stems from that, that there's just, you know, no, no, no ethical. Ha- yeah, you can't say I'm going to lock you up in the cell Deprive you of like clean drinking water, AC, um, like connections from the outside. I'm gonna sit here and I'm gonna torture you, but it's we're gonna make it ethical. That's that's like, <laughs> you know, mutually exclusive. I think. Charleston.
0: I do too. One last question for you. We have been speaking with mixed media artist and writer based in Brooklyn, Daniela Ochoa Bravo, who wrote the In These Times article when climate disaster and mass incarceration collide. Uh, you can follow Daniela on Twitter at Daniela Ochoa BR, and you can find out more about Daniela at her website, com. One last question for you, Daniela, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. Conversations about incarceration always allow us to... Polish off and bring out that old chestnut of a quote by Fyodor Dostoevsky. The degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. Daniela, what does leaving prisoners in prisons facing disaster say about civilization in the United States today?
2: (laughs) Um, Nothing good, I can tell you that much. And that's my polite way of putting it. You know, I think that the U.S. is... And um, I mean, I mean, I feel like I can say this, but it's like a failed state, essentially, from every aspect you look at it. And you can see that in the reflection of we have, I think, the most inhumane and not that any can be humane, but it's like the lowest of the low um, jails and prisons in this country. And they are not rehabilitative centers whatsoever. It's essentially a death sentence.
0: Daniela, thank you so much for being on our show today. Uh, congratulations you. on your position and good luck at, in these times. <laughs> Everybody should be following Daniela on Twitter at Daniela OchoaBR and make sure you check out her writing at Daniel, DanielaOchoaBR.com. Thank you so much for being on our show and Thank enjoy you enj- enjoy your weekend. Thank
2: you. And likewise.
0: Thanks. If you like what you just heard, please show your support for completely listener supported This Is Hell by going to This Is com and clicking on support to see all the ways you can contribute to This Is Hell, including. All of our merchandise and a direct link to our weekly Patreon podcast, which you can subscribe to now by going to patreon.com/this is hell. Speaking of which, keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, This Is Hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcasted at the same place shortly after. And you'll immediately get access to, geez, it's almost like 200 past Patreon podcasts. So it's like a whole other year of This Is Hell all featuring monologues by me that are not posted anywhere else online, as well as classic archives that we have yet to put up online as we are trying to build up the resources enough to rebuild our entire 25-year archive to make them accessible to everyone for free. But on this week's Patreon podcast, which is happening tomorrow, we've, we've all heard the Gil Scott Heron classic, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. The lyrics are a bit dated with references to Search for Tomorrow, Hooterville Junction, Bullwinkle, Spiro Agnew, and Xerox. By the way, did you know that what's left of Xerox is a company with the most made-up word for a a company name ever? All that's left of Xerox is a company called Conduent. C-O-N-D-U-E-N-T. Conduent. And is there a more perfectly cromulent word than Conduent, but one line of the lyrics from the revolution will not be televised that still applies very much today and that line is there will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and that may be proving to be true at this very moment right now when by all accounts of our guests on our show we seem to be in a worldwide global revolution an uprising that is challenging the very foundation of the greatest powers in the world and the Nations they have corrupted through colonialism post-colonialism, and the neocolonialism Of financialization and neoliberalism I'm telling you, the revolution Looks like it is happening and it's not Being televised, and I'll tell you all About the revolution that seems to me To be taking place Even if nobody wants to talk about it I mean, it makes sense, the corporate establishment media From Fox News to MSNBC doesn't want to Report on a revolution, after all The revolution is an uprising against their bosses And their way of life that profits and benefits From the exploitation of others, so no The revolution will not be televised But it will be revealed tomorrow On our Friday morning, 10 a.m. Chicago time, Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash hell. Meanwhile, yesterday, Wednesday, as I was mentioning earlier on the show, Omar Barghoudi, the co-founder of the Palestinian Civil Society Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Campaign Against Israel, the movement opposing Israel's policies toward the Palestinian people and toward Arab Israelis, posted an article of The Guardian yesterday, headlined, People of Conscience, Palestinians ask you to boycott Israel With Omar again asking for a boycott We thought we'd go back and share our February 2012 interview with Omar When we discussed the BDS strategy, which was adopted from the fantastic success of the anti-apartheid movement in the 1980s against South Africa's minority rule government. Oh, by the way, that BDS campaign was seen as illegal and immoral by the Reagan administration. So just keep that in mind. It worked so well in ending white rule of South Africa, Palestinian activists decided why not apply the same strategy against Israel's occupation? So Omar Barghouti is also a founding member of the Palestinian Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel. And he wrote the book on BDS titled BDS, The Global Struggle for Palestinian Rights. So tomorrow on Patreon, on the Patreon podcast of This Is Hell, patreon.com slash this is hell, beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time Friday, post, posted at the same place shortly after. It's the revolution that is not being televised, but it will be discussed on tomorrow's Patreon podcast And we're sharing a talk with the co-founder of the controversial BDS movement That was so successful, the U.S. government is doing everything it can to stop it I mean, you don't want political dissidents toppling apartheid Or ending what the U.S. defines as an illegal, or the U.N. defines as an illegal occupation The last thing you want is a political opposition that is actually successful at challenging power but you can only hear all that by subscribing to the weekly "This Is Hell" Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after the same place. And that place again is Patreon.com/slash This Is Hell. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. It's Jeff and the Jews again. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Joining him in the booth today is Aegon Scheele This week's question from Hell is, what got you kicked out of the commune? Alex, how are our listeners responding to this week's question from Hell? Uh,
1: What got you kicked out of the commune? Austin RM says, I didn't want to eat the kale. (laughs) Joel G says, my Alex P. Keaton imitation. (laughs) And Sal L says, always keeping my six, uh, six foot social distancing from people and other mammals throughout my stay.
0: Michael J. Fox, a big part of your youth there, Alex.
1: Yeah, I remember that. Well, in reruns, uh, I wanted to apologize to you. I thought you made a mistake when you were talking about uh, Gil Scott-Heron uh, lyrics, "The Revolution Won't Be Televised." Yeah. Hooterville Junction is not a real place. It was Hooterville, and then Petticoat Junction was a location within Hooterville. But there's no Hooterville Junction. Right. But that's a mistake on his part, not yours. <laughs> exactly. So my, my apologies to uh to Chuck on that one. Why well,
0: you were thinking that I got that wrong? Uh,
1: well, I was I didn't like, Hooterville Junction is weird to me. You think it was a, it was a I a thought it was part on his point.
0: I. I just thought it was a weird thing that he would mention the actual like the Petticoat Junction must have been a huge thing when he was writing that because he didn't even have to say Petticoat Junction he actually just said the location of where Petticoat Junction thought, yeah just Hooterville no junction it's on so weird so weird let's get it together Gil I know
1: uh, sorry uh, let's get the rest of the questions uh, there's like a handful more after uh, after Jeffy
0: okay you can leave your answer you still can leave your answer to this week's question from Helen at our Facebook page you can email it to us you can tweet it to us but we have to have your answer in now Keep in mind a lot of the questions I asked this week Oh, scratch that All the questions I asked this week were written while I was high This is hell, I know you have FFA on the line Because you just told me What?
3: pity the jew welcome to the moment of truth the thirst that is the drink i am a jew and all i ask is your pity let me tell you my sad tale the current events in israel have a slightly different resonance this time around even though they appear to be more of the same the attacks by various organs of Israeli ethnic oppression against the occupied Palestinian population in the current month of May have killed and destroyed more than human beings and property. They have pushed the myth of Israeli self-defense off the chessboard of reasonable narratives. It was already teetering on the edge, but they slammed their fists on the table just one time too many. Netanyahu is the perfect monster to preside over this especially significant iteration of ethnic cleansing of the land the Israeli government occupies. His motive is obviously to keep himself out of jail and in power, just as his U.S. doppelganger Donald Trump's motive was for everything he did while president, and for that matter, all he's continued to do after. Netanyahu's amoral reasons— For his immoral actions, tolerations of abuse, and policy orders have torn off the disguise of statecraft and burned it, displaying the pure barbarism under all the talk. This is not an endorsement of attacks against Israelis or anyone else, nor is it intended as an excuse for such. This is a straightforward polemic against an occupying government terrorizing part of its population, but it is also a plea for pity. You must pity me. No, I haven't been forced to leave my home, nor has it been bombed, nor have any of my friends, neighbors, or relatives been tear-gassed or beaten by the IDF or the Israeli police. I'm not even one of the Israeli Jews who protested early on to try to prevent violence, getting to the point where Hamas was launching rockets at Tel Aviv. Those Jews were beaten and arrested as if they were in a U.S. city marching for black lives to matter. You should pity me because I have Jewish friends and relatives, some of them even politically sympathetic, and I've noticed that a few of them, even the non-rabid propaganda parrots, still believe a few old tales. One is that there were no Arabs already living in Palestine before 1948, or if there were, they were Bedouin nomadic herdspeople in tents. Otherwise, just wasted desert no one was exploiting to its greatest potential. There was no removal of Palestinians from their towns, their homes, because there were no such stable habitations. Never mind that Bedouin are people too, but the story that, all unawares and innocent, noble and peaceful, the newly established Israel had to fight for its existence against outside enemies coming into its borders from its anti-Semitic neighbors is a fabrication. Palestinians were removed from their homes by Israeli military violence, and those homes were then usurped by Jews, and those Palestinians became refugees. And I don't contend that everything that came afterwards was a consequence of that, but it certainly does correlate historically when considering a series of subsequent nightmarish events i spent the past few weeks reading the books of, learning about, and eventually meeting a poet named Naomi Shihab Nye. She lived the early years of her life in St. Louis, Missouri. Then, in the 1970s, when she was on the cusp of adolescence, her Palestinian father, who had been lucky enough to be able to flee to the U.S. instead of into a refugee camp, brought Naomi, her brother, and her very white mother back to Jerusalem because he wanted to see his mother again and wanted his family there to meet his U.S.-born offspring. Naomi is best known for her poetry, but in her semi-autobiographical young adult novel Habibi, about those years she lived in Jerusalem, she speaks plainly and soberly about the violence her grandmother and those around her suffered due to Israeli policy toward the Palestinians. And I want those Jews... Intransigent in their denial of reality, to read Habibi, and to meet Naomi, I want to say to them, Look, this is Naomi Shihab Nye. She's a middle class artist entering her later years in a house in san antonio texas she has kids her husband's a photographer she cares about the environment education the voices of the underrepresented the powerless and the unhoused and food and health insecure she goes to book signings and art openings where she drinks white wine just like your moms do she's just like your mom in fact she's just like you Except her grandparents or great-grandparents weren't chased out of Europe by Polish, Russian, or German violence. They were chased out of their homes by Israeli violence. My purpose in all this is to advocate for peace. There is peace in a lot of Israel. All different kinds of people get along. Even some Jews and Palestinians in the West Bank. It's undeniably possible. And yet, this unconscionable persecution continues. Ironically... And I mean really ironically, I know I once said irony is dead and Israel killed it, but evidently irony is Israel's Rasputin, a seductive fake mystic that just won't stay dead. Ironically, Israel has never been in a better position to stop harassing and brutalizing Palestinians. They have the border wall they always wanted. They have the Iron Dome, the defense system that allows them to shoot down the majority of whatever rockets their antagonists launch. They have an air force with hundreds of bombers and fighter jets. They have nuclear weapons, or rumored nuclear weapons, which is just as good. They have a buffer between themselves and Syria called Lebanon, with which Israel has a stressfully ambiguous relationship. Monday, a half-dozen rockets launched from Lebanon toward Israel, probably or possibly by Hezbollah, landed within the Lebanese border. Relations with Jordan are reasonably amicable, Egypt, too. All of these relations are now questionable thanks to recent Israeli aggression against its Palestinian second-class citizens. The world has joined in condemnation of Israel's egregious use of force. Even the Abraham Accords, a fairly boneless and unenthusiastically received declaration brokered by brand spokesmannequin Jared Kushner under the brow of the Trump regime, could be in jeopardy if Anyone cares. Meanwhile, over the past 70 odd years, Israel has whittled down the area the Palestinian population is allowed to inhabit to about the same percentage of space mitochondria take up in a eukaryotic cell. Israel's got checkpoints if they're paranoid. All they have to do is stop killing people as they approach them. Settlers, cops, and the IDF need to stop harassing Palestinians, burning their crops, building illegal settlements, curtailing Palestinian travel, controlling their access to food and water. Common sense, common courtesy stuff. But instead of taking advantage of all the apartheid on steroids security measures they've accumulated and beginning talks for peace, reconciliation, and restorative justice from their position of obvious strength, Netanyahu and his belligerent co-Yahus have gambled that they can somehow take even more from Israel's severely regulated minority without putting in jeopardy the already fraying narrative about an exceptionally moral people chosen by God to be the eternal victim. I'm not fitting to argue with anybody. I have kept relatively quiet on this topic for years as I've watched the Israeli right get more and more vicious toward opposition and heedless of what the rest of civilization thinks. But the reality remains. The land was never empty. Arabs were forced out of their homes and off their land in 1948, and it continues. These are the unhappy facts. A people with a history like the Jews should not be imposing misery upon others. After all the Jews have been through, there is no excuse for anyone calling themselves Jew to defend the occupation. I know many of you bridle at the words apartheid and occupation and at any comparison, God forbid, to the Nazis, so I have a suggestion, an actual constructive suggestion. When you're honest with yourself... And you hear something you're thinking. That sounds like something a white South African presiding over apartheid might say, or an anti-Semite from whatever historical era, or General Custer might say about Native Americans, or a World War II Japanese general might say about anyone not Japanese, or someone who thinks of black people as needing to be controlled because of broad general biological or cultural traits, or, or something Tsar Nicholas might have said about peasants. Catch yourself. And when you catch yourself, instead of trying to formulate an Orwellian workaround so your negative thought sounds less objectionable, try to figure out if the underlying premise of the thought is true or if it might rather be an artifact of that type of military justification people use mendaciously for harming a group of others because it's a way they can make themselves believe the disdained others aren't fully human. This has been the moment of truth. Good day.
0: I think uh, irony is Israel's Rasputin would make a great bumper sticker.
3: Mm, Except,
0: mm. except, it's such a thinker, it may cause traffic accidents. (laughs) I.
3: Personally, I think it's obvious, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> I
0: think it's obvious. I think people would stop and go, wait, who's Rasputin again? What's irony? Oh, right.
3: Oh, <laughs> right. Oh, right. They'd be Googling stuff and then they'd get in a crash.
0: Exactly. Stuck mm-hmm. on irony, trying to figure out what irony actually is. Yes. Now, <laughs> now,
3: Bullwinkle and Junior is another thing that Gil Scott-Heron says.
0: Yes. Junior?
3: Yeah. It's like, who? I, I, maybe he means Junior of uh, good times.
0: Uh, I right. think it's too I don't know or isn't there JJ JJ's real name was Junior? Right, but isn't there full name jun- whatever not even real name another ju- name There's a Junior who was like a country singer on Hee Haw.
3: Oh, Junior Samples. Yes. He was not a he was not a country singer. He was just a big dumb guy who could Actually, I mean, he must have been a musician of some type. They didn't just say, hey, big dumb guy, come over here and be big and dumb at the Grand Old Opry. (laughs) Right. Stand over here next to Grandpa and Pearl, what's her face? (laughs) Not
0: Pearl Bailey. Yeah, but uh, Minnie Pearl, who uh, was actually incredibly rich and an aristocrat in Nashville. And so it's really weird that she would play this woman who's supposed to be poor. All right, Right. Jeff. Although she was a
3: brilliant person,
0: apparently. Brilliant writer, brilliant, and very bold when she started out, supposedly. Supposedly. That's the
3: story. Big challenger to the uh, patriarchy in, in uh,
0: Nashville. Hmm. Hmm.
3: I don't know. Alex might know more.
0: <laughs> hey, Jeffy. Me? Yes. Until next time. What? Stay beautiful. Oh, you mean I'm beautiful now? Yes, you are. That's absurd. your Irony is dead. Dude. <laughs> it, it, it's uh, Israel's Rasputin and yours as well. Right. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. Alex, please remind our listeners what is this week's question from Hell and how are they responding?
1: What got you kicked out of the commune? What got you kicked out of the commune? Our friend's hypocrite reader said our answer to this week's question from Hell persecuted once again for being an air air fryer truther (laughs) old friend eat fart 60 oh god damn it eat fart 69
0: air fryer truther I really like go
1: ahead eat fart 69 said your mom (laughs) I expected more (laughs) I expected more from you eat fart 69 I
0: got you kicked out of the commune your mom my mom would get me in the commune and then they would kick me out because once they'd find out what I'm really like then
1: I would be kicked out couple more responses via twitter what got you kicked out of the commune? Stray sign says, I keep throwing out the expired food. Everyone says it's good for another few weeks. <laughs> Fear man says, destroyed our fragile solar grid with my cryptocurrency miner. And Renduke says, my pillow fort turning into a duvet based warfare.
0: <laughs> okay, the answers I like Way the brag most brag about having a duvet over there, man. <laughs> exactly. Is it bona fides or duvet?
1: Oh, sorry, one last one. Flying Needle, sorry, Flying Needle says hippie side. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. The answers I like the most were Daniel saying my girlfriend's, girlfriend's, boyfriend's wife. That's what got him kicked out of the commune Phillips saying the Dawes Act And this just gives us the opportunity to tell you that the Dawes Act Remind you that the Dawes Act of 1887 Authorized the federal government to break up tribal lands By partitioning them into individual plots Only those Native Americans who accepted the individual allotments Were allowed to become U.S. citizens Fabio saying I complained about too many meetings To which Len explained Well, yours is different from mine I got... Sick and barfed on someone's shoes by accident and then got kicked out. Why are you? Uh, what got you kicked out of the commune? Jacob said factionalism, which is great. They're a bunch of revisionists, Jacob says. Greg said all the other uh, residents were lifestyle anarchists. They don't like it when I said they were capitalists in cheap clothing. Adam had a great answer. Nobody there wanted to admit being an open, full-fledged member of a commune meant being... A communist. It's like those guys who get offended when you call that shoulder bag they carry everywhere a purse. Own it, you damn commies. That makes this week's winner. Alex, any that really stuck out to you? Because I know one that really did.
1: Dawes Act was pretty good.
0: Dawes Act is really good. I like Daniel saying my girlfriend's girlfriend's boyfriend's wife. Go for it, Chuck. Uh, I'm going to go with the Dawes Act because I was... It it was a toss-up, and the fact that I had to look up the Dawes Act to be reminded of what it was and how it is so applicable. Philip, the fact that you cited precedent, you are the winner of this week's question. All you have to do is just send us your mailing address. With your real name I assume, Philip, this is your real name But some of our people who have answered questions Have not given us their real name at the, on Facebook And then we have to Just send us your address and tell us What kind of piece what piece of This Is Hell merchandise you want That you can see right now by going to thisishell.com And clicking on support And we will get that in the mail to you ASAP My answer to this week's question from Hell What got you kicked out of the commune Well, it wasn't that I got kicked out of the commune As much as I pointed out how myself and all the members Of the commune were complicit in the shortcomings Of the commune And that living in a commune was like living in denial Of the real world of suffering that surrounded us The whole thing bummed everyone out And we all went our own way I still feel really guilty about it What are you going to do? Thanks everyone for sending in your answers To this week's question from hell We start every week uh, Our live streaming shows here at Thisishell.com by revealing this week's Hangover cure, and this week's hangover cure Is six teaspoons of sugar and a half teaspoon Of salt into a liter of water with our apologies to recent get James, guest James Doucette Battle, Battle, author of Sweetness in the Blood, Race, Risk, and Type 2 Diabetes. Yes, this week's hangover cure is sugar water. Thanks to this week's guests, including Colombian attorney Alejandra marin Buitrago, who wrote the counterpunch article, Columbia on the Brink. Also, thanks to Yanina Hirth and Marcus Ryan, co-authors of the article, Algorithmic Assembly Lines. You can find the article and more about the Transnational Institute at TNI.org. Yanina and Marcus are members of the Transnational Information Exchange Network, a global grassroots network of workers active in workplaces and communities. And you can learn more about the Transnational Information Exchange at TIE-Germany.org Thanks to yesterday's guest Religious Studies scholar Rebecca C. Bartel, Author of Card-Carrying Christians Debt and the Making of Free Market Spirituality In Colombia Follow Rebecca on Twitter At Rebecca Bartel 20 And thanks to today's guest Mixed media artist And writer Daniela Ochoa Bravo Who wrote the In These Times article When Climate Disaster And Mass Incarceration Collide Follow Daniela on Twitter At Daniellaochoabr And find out more about Daniela at DanielaOchoaBR.com Thanks to Alexander Jerry for producing. Thanks to Egon Scheele for being here today. Thanks to Richard Norwood and Jess Lipka for running the board this week and everything else they do for the show. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for the moment of, of truth and Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. And special thanks to Theron Humiston, because if it was not for Theron, we would not have been able to do a couple of the shows this week. So thank you, Theron. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, and we'll be playing our 2012 interview with BDS co-founder Omar Barghouti, who is again asking for the boycott, divestment, and sanctions against Israeli policies towards the Palestinian people, as well as Israel, or Arab Israelis. And I'll be reporting on the revolution that is not being televised, and it will not be, but you can only hear that by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. I'm your bitter blind broke gaptooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz producing today's show is Alex Jerry with the assistance of Aegon Shiel. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words Everybody's stupid.